The mental health of our U.S. military veterans is an issue of increasing concern, with estimates today suggesting that post-traumatic stress from active military service affects and impacts somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of our veteran population. The challenge is, how can accurate information about high-risk behaviors be obtained from veterans in order to provide timely and effective early interventions for mental health crises? On today's show, we'll hear from one researcher who's taking on this challenge, and he's working with a team to develop an innovative mobile health support system utilizing smartphone technology in hopes of helping U.S. military veterans detect and reduce high-risk behaviors associated with PTSD. What do the behaviors that are associated with high-risk events look like? Anger is one of the least researched emotions, and so one of the things that we're trying to do is challenge that and say, can we look scientifically at this? And I think that's going to really open things up. And later, we'll hear about how some students in our community spent their summer working in translational science. I'm Adesha Williams. My name is Ayman Hisahaku. And I am one of CTSI's 500 stars. It's a look at an innovative solution toward helping military veterans battling PTSD through research, technology, and community inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter's Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, Wisconsin, and the Milwaukee VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. With over 2 million military service personnel deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq since 2001, there's been a sharp increase in the sheer number of military veterans diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Recent numbers indicate that as many as 2 out of 10 or 20% of troops are impacted by PTSD following their service overseas and upon returning to civilian life. PTSD is typically a chronic condition, and unfortunately, it's often resistant to treatment. Still, researchers are working hard to develop new treatments and interventions that can be effective in addressing PTSD, as well as detect and reduce high-risk behaviors often associated with the disorder. Dr. Zeno Franco is Assistant Professor, Family and Community Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Franco has spent the majority of his career working with military veterans. He's currently leading a project Project in developing an innovative mobile health support system that utilizes smartphone technology in hopes of providing timely and effective early intervention for mental health crises. We had an opportunity to speak with Dr. Franco recently, and we began our conversation by having him talk about the prevalence rate of PTSD among our U.S. military veterans and active military population. Between 10 and 20 percent of veterans from any different era have PTSD. Uh, That would be around 2 out of 10 folks that have served overseas, seen combat. Sometimes it's not even combat related. 
If you look across the lifespan of a veteran, about 30% of them experience PTSD at some point during their life. How does this compare with past estimates? Is the problem with PTSD health-related issues a growing problem? The sense is that in part because of the multiple deployments that are happening with uh, OEF, OIF veterans, that's veterans that went overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11. Instead of like in Vietnam, they would serve for one tour of duty and come back. We have been sending them back four, five, six times even. And so they've just seen a lot more. They've been through a lot more. So we're thinking that based on that, the prevalence of PTSD is a little bit higher with this cycle. Next, we asked Dr. Franco who in the military commonly suffers from symptoms of PTSD. Does it vary based on their specific role or branch in the military? When I was clinically active in the VA system, one of the roles that we saw often having the most PTSD is Navy medics. If you think about the Marines who go in, the Marines see a lot of combat. But the Navy medics actually have to clean up the mess. They have to try to put people back together on the battlefield. And so there are certain combat roles that see a lot of difficult things when they're out there, and they're impacted by it. And he notes that the era that they served in the military can affect a veteran's PTSD treatment as well. If we think about folks that served in World War II, the culture in the U.S. at the time was basically don't talk about what happened. And so a lot of those guys didn't really realize that they had PTSD. The families didn't realize that there was a lot of problems, but it really didn't come up into broader discussion or into discussion with their healthcare providers. You contrast that with Vietnam combat theater veterans. A lot of them came back to, you know, baby killer stuff when they got off the plane. So that kind of cultural context has changed how they experience things and, and what their symptoms are too if they have PTSD. Diagnoses of PTSD are often associated with high-risk behaviors. Dr. Franco tells us that some of the specific high-risk behaviors can involve everyday common activities, such as driving. In some ways, you think about everything getting amplified. So, you know, the young veterans that are coming back. They're kind of amped up. They're used to being in a high-intensity environment. They're used to a lot of threats being there. And so one of the most common things that I saw when I was treating folks is high-risk driving. So driving too fast, driving down the center lane. And some of this stuff doesn't make sense to a civilian, but when you think about it, when they're in Iraq or Afghanistan, they're dealing with improvised explosive devices at the side of the road. The safest place to be is on the center line. And so we see young guys that come back and are getting arrested for driving recklessly, and it's really because of those military experiences that they have. And it's these high-risk behaviors that can lead to, or result in, personal crises events for veterans. It runs from binge drinking to kind of suppress feelings that they have. Drug and alcohol abuse is a really common problem. Those things then often spin out into domestic violence or you know, relational problems. We see a lot of divorce. We see a lot of families kind of getting broken up. And there's oftentimes problems at work, and so people have a lot of anger, and they express that in the workplace, and then they get fired. So a huge range of different problems with reintegration. Of course, anyone can experience one, but how much more likely is a veteran suffering from PTSD to experience a personal crisis event compared to their non-military counterparts? The best way to think about that across many different studies is it looks like veterans are sort of twice as likely as a civilian counterpart, maybe who even does have PTSD, to have some sort of crisis. Then that could be suicidal behavior. It could be, again, drug and alcohol abuse. And these things also lead into a set of health-related problems as well. Then, how treatable is PTSD in helping to control high-risk behaviors commonly associated with the condition? That's a complex question. One answer is that we've gotten a lot better over the last few years. The VA system is using some very powerful evidence-based psychotherapeutic treatments, medications. And at the same time, PTSD is also understood by the VA system as being treatment-resistant in many cases. And that may be because there's some biological changes that happen. It may be just because the memories from combat exposure are so strong. We don't know. 
But it's a tough one. If somebody has it, it's not always the easiest thing to be. Because many of these high-risk behaviors are resistant to treatment, Dr. Franco says it's caused him and his colleagues to rethink how and what to treat. What's interesting for me, and that's part of the work that we're doing, is rather than trying to treat the disorder, if you want to think about it that way, and the veterans would say that it's not necessarily a disorder, right? It's just a result of their experiences. But from the medical perspective, we're still trying to work on it as a disorder. And so if we take that level of thinking, we're trying to approach it from one direction. And so what we've done is we've flipped it and we've said, can we address the behaviors that are coming from this disorder instead of trying to treat the disorder itself? And that's kind of been a big transition in our thinking. As a result, they're developing their own innovative tools and approach. But before we learn about that, we asked Dr. Franco, what are some of the more traditional treatments or interventions for high-risk behaviors associated with PTSD? The VA is using a couple of different things. One is called prolonged exposure. And so that really takes the veteran back through the traumatic memories that they've experienced. Another one is called cognitive processing therapy. It's an approach based in cognitive behavioral therapy, but has a little bit more focus on PTSD. And those are very powerful tools to get at the PTSD itself. But again, our kind of shift is looking at these behaviors that come from it rather than just focusing on the symptoms themselves. It isn't that these traditional treatments aren't effective. No, not at all. They're the most effective thing that we have out there. But the VA is also asking, are there ways that we can address this differently? for those people especially that are not recovering even after they've gone through evidence-based therapy. Dr. Franco and his colleagues are addressing PTSD differently. He tells us that with advancements in technology, opportunities for providing innovative treatments and interventions are wanted by today's veterans. As these younger veterans were coming back, we realized that a lot of them are sort of technology focused and we weren't really in that space. The care providers are sort of thinking about traditional face-to-face -face therapy. A lot of these young veterans that are coming back are trying to restart their life they're trying to go back to school, they're trying to deal with a job, and they would prefer to interact with some sort of therapeutic care using technology instead of face-to-face -face interaction. It's a generational effect. But is the push for integrating technology into treatment also coming from the research community? There's a couple of answers to that. One is that we're also trying to control costs. And so if there's ways to help folks using something that can be used over and over again, like a technology that doesn't necessarily put a trained professional in the mix, that's a way to reduce costs while still providing good therapeutic intervention. The other flip side of that, and this is really where our research is coming from, is we've thought a lot about personalized medicine over the last few years, but we haven't thought a lot about personalized behavioral medicine. And technology sometimes can address that really effectively. Out of this need, Dr. Franco and a team of cohorts worked with a local veterans organization to identify a possible solution. And they said, look, can we replicate what we're doing, which is veteran peer-to-peer -peer support. So a veteran that has experience in the military maybe has suffered from PTSD, working with another veteran who is also experiencing symptoms but doesn't know much about the disorder, for example. So they said, can we take that one-on-one -on -one program between veterans and can we move that into the digital world a little bit so that we can do some of this outreach using smartphones, for example. So that's what they began working on with the goal of trying to replicate, if we can, in a digital format, this personal interaction, which is kind of a non sequitur, if you will, right? So we're thinking about how to use technology, but also how to make that technology reflect a one-on-one -on -one interaction. So that was a big piece for us, is kind of building in that human-centric view. The work on the smartphone application is a collaborative partnership. And that partnership involves a number of CTSI partners. UW-Milwaukee is part of it, the VA, and Marquette has also been at the wheel in terms
terms of developing the technology. They have a ubiquitous computing lab that's run by Dr. Iqbal Ahmed, and he has been the technology partner for us at Marquette, actually doing the development. And there's another important partner, the Veterans Organization, that helped identify the need in the first place. I've been working with Dry Hooch of America, which is a veteran-led nonprofit organization in Milwaukee for about 10 years. It's an interesting thing because it's really a community academic partnership. And they said, look, can we replicate what we're doing, which is veteran peer-to-peer support. The executive director, Bob Curry at Dry Hooch, said this really is where we need to go. Our job then was to figure out how to fund that. So we went to the Healthier Wisconsin Partnership Program and said, look, we think this is an important idea. It's really come to us from the community. It's not our idea. It's really their idea. We're just trying to help them bring it all the way to fruition. And it's Dry Hooch that's been instrumental in bringing veterans into the research. One of the key things with community-engaged research is that if we're doing serious recruiting for high-risk veterans, for example, it may be difficult to recruit them into a study. We have to get to those folks. And so Dry Hooch has better reach with high-risk veterans than I do, and they're able to bring those people into the study. Next, we'll learn about how the smartphone app works. First, it's important to note, at this time, there are actually two apps. One is this piece around the digitally supported peer interaction, and the other is to see if we can detect crisis behavior. And so we actually came to CTSI to ask for some support for this crisis detection piece and got a small pilot grant to get this work move forward. The plan is to eventually merge the two apps into one. But for now, let's look at how they currently work independent of each other. We're taking a two-pronged approach. One is self-report data. The veterans check in with their peer mentor twice a week and they provide some self-report data. Stage two for us is also looking at can we use the sensor sets on the smartphones to look at specific behaviors. Can we correlate those behaviors that the sensors see to crisis events for the veterans? And so that's the next stage for us. And it's this second stage that's currently in development. Can the app literally detect physical signs of agitation and distress that can lead to high-risk behavior? If you think about your smartphone, it can tell if you're walking or if you're sitting, right? It can tell how much physical activity you've gotten in a day. There's a whole bunch of things it knows. What we've been trying to do is, based on veteran input, reflect that in a series of simulations of high-risk behaviors in the laboratory environment. And now we're actually parsing that data down from the simulations if we can look at specific gestures or level of energy expenditure or changes in routine to see if any of those things might indicate a crisis is occurring. Dr. Franco says the hope is to collect a large amount of data with this stage of the app. There's a couple of big buzzwords out there. One is big data and another is predictive analytics. That's where we're trying to go. We're trying to collect a huge amount of behavioral data about veterans. Right now, we're not at the stage of actually doing it with veterans. We're simulating it. From there, in these different patterns in the data, can we see specific behaviors that are occurring? And that's really leading edge work in this environment. Very few other labs are doing this. Dr. Franco says the app will utilize many different detection strategies. For example, detecting energy or geographical deviations from a veteran's typical or acceptable behavior. Right now, we're focusing a lot on gesture. So anger is a really key crisis point for veterans. And so we're using accelerometer data that comes from the smartphone about how quickly the smartphone is moving in space. But you can also think about GPS. Yes, is that person doing different stuff in terms of where they are in the day. 
we can tell if somebody's at a bar, right? And so if a veteran has a problem with drinking, you can imagine that an alert would go out to that person saying, hey, what's up? You need to talk to your sponsor. So that's kind of the direction this is going. Social media can also aid in detecting risk behaviors. Another thing that veterans do when they have PTSD is they tend to socially isolate. They're afraid of going out into certain situations that can feel overwhelming to be with a lot of people. And so they may just stay at home uh, when their symptoms are particularly elevated. And so we can figure some of that out from the smartphone, again, from GPS, but also there may be a sudden drop in the number of people that they're talking to every week. That's probably a pretty good indicator that they're isolating and what can we do to intervene. They're also trying to close the loop on making the app bi-directional so that the veterans can receive information as well as provide it. But he explains why that might not be as reliable as one might think. Right now what it does is it provides information to their peer mentor because we do feel like having a trained veteran peer mentor is a big piece of this. Just giving the information directly back to the veteran may or may not help. Sometimes the veteran might be in denial. There are a whole bunch of reasons why that information may not be helpful to them directly. But putting that information in the hands of somebody that cares about them and can give them a call and say, hey, I see that this, this, and this is happening. Can you tell me more about what's going on? Should I come over? Can I call you back tomorrow? Those are the things that are going to prevent a suicide. He adds that many veterans aren't even aware of their PTSD symptoms. The veteran may not even be aware that they're symptomatic. So we may get self-report data from them saying, I'm doing fine, and really they're having a difficult problem with sleep that week. If we can see that the phone is active at 2 o'clock in the morning, they're having disrupted sleep. So the phone may be more accurate in certain situations than the veteran is. We're trying to get data from three different places, the veteran, their peer mentor, and the sensors, and combine that into a more comprehensive picture. Because after all, the smartphone app is intended to detect and reduce high-risk behaviors without sacrificing personal interaction with others. Ryhooch's entire reason for being is to provide veteran peer support because they feel like that that is one of the key to help with reintegration process. So that trick has been to build technology that integrates that human touch into a larger technologically driven process. Of course, some vets want to rely solely on the app and avoid human interaction. Had a few veterans come up to us and say, I would do this if it was only based on a smartphone, but I don't want to talk to anybody at all. There are times when talking to a clinician is too scary and getting that sort of first interaction to be delivered from a technology can be a really important first step. So is a vet who fits that profile still suitable for Dr. Franco's study? Yes, in some senses they are because with the smartphone piece, they don't necessarily have to have face-to-face contact. It could be text-based contact or telephone support. So there's still some human contact, but it's not necessarily face-to-face. Again, there are two separate apps being developed with the hopes of eventually merging them. At this point, the sensory-based Ampere app is being tested in the laboratory before being utilized with veterans. We're really simulating this in a laboratory environment. So we've taken a lot of input from veterans about what high-risk behavior looks like. We have tried to then replicate that, not using the veterans, but using our own resources in the laboratory and then looking at that data. Meanwhile, the Quick Reaction Force peer-to-peer app is an active study. So is it open to accept more veterans into the study? Yeah, we certainly are. That study is open right now to recruitment. We're actually looking for 30 or 40 additional folks to enter into that study. And how can a veteran learn more about enrolling? The easiest way to do that is to go to DryHooch, and they can find a whole bunch of information about the study right there. That's dryhooch.org. Click on the Programs tab on the homepage, then look for QRF, or Quick Reaction Force, for information on the study. We'll be sure to post a link on our CTSI website along with the podcast of this show. 
So once fully integrated together, what's the future for the quick reaction force and Ampere sensory apps? For us, the next big question is how do we commercialize this? And it's not to make money, it's to get it disseminated. We're actually in the process of looking for commercial partners and trying to transfer this technology out. And so we're working on this as a commercial application ultimately. In addition to taking their innovations to market for helping veterans, can Dr. Franco see the app possibly being used in helping other populations as well? There are mental health crises that kind of span the spectrum. A lot of different folks have different issues, depression, anxiety, and crises come up with that. So we're actually trying to test it out in some senses with veterans because for the veterans that are experiencing real problems, they're at particular risk. And so that actually creates a great situation for me as a scientist. It sounds a little bit funny, but there's just a higher incidence of them having these problems. And so it's easier to study. Once we understand how it's impacting veterans and how we can intervene, we can translate that to mental health problems across the board. It doesn't necessarily have to be veteran-specific. Ultimately, what does Dr. Franco hope to better understand as an outcome? I think one of the things that we're trying to delve into is really almost at a philosophical level, what do the behaviors that are associated with high-risk events look like? And we haven't really thought about that as scientists very much. Anger is one of the least researched areas, one of the least researched emotions maybe because it makes researchers uncomfortable. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is challenge that and say, can we look scientifically at this? And I think that's going to really open things up. And what does he want us to better understand about veterans suffering from PTSD? One of the key things is that veterans don't want to see themselves as broken, especially the younger veterans returning from Afghanistan and Iraq don't want to have some of the same experiences that came with the Vietnam experience. And so I think it's really key for us as a community to embrace our veterans and say we're here and not look at them as crazy. At the same time, we have to remember that there are some veterans that do really, really struggle. Most won't. Most will recover just fine. They'll reintegrate just fine. But there'll be a few, think about two out of ten, that are going to be in trouble at some point during their life. And it's our job to reach them. And that can't always be done by a clinician. Sometimes it's done by a boss in a workplace. And if you know that the person that you're working with is a veteran and they're starting to experience some problems, and your mindset is, I can do something about it, that's our responsibility as a community. It's not just the VA's responsibility. It's not just the medical college's responsibility. It's all of us saying we stand with veterans. And that's the fundamental take-home message for me. Finally, Dr. Franco says that doing research to help veterans is more than his profession. It's his purpose. I've spent my entire career working on post-traumatic stress disorder and issues around combat experience. We owe a debt to the folks that have gone overseas. Part of that is trying to figure out how can we pick them up and put them back where they need to be. That's why I come to work every day. Our thanks to Dr. Zeno Franco, Assistant Professor, Family and Community Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Up next, our CTS Eye on the Community focuses on a group of students who spent their summer vacation working in translational science and research through the CTSI 500-star initiative and its summer internship opportunity program. The 500-stars initiative is a pipeline program supported by a generous grant from the Al Hervis Adam Education Foundation, providing learning opportunities for high school and college students to enter and become part of the translational science 
its workforce. One of the key components of the 500 Stars initiative is its commitment to diversity and focus on increasing underrepresented minorities throughout the translational science enterprise. The 2017 500 Stars recently wrapped up with a poster presentation featuring the students' recent work and a completion ceremony to mark their achievements. We had the pleasure of catching up with two of this summer's 500 stars, and you'll meet them now. My name is Ayman Sahaku, and I am a senior at Nicolay High School. I'm Adesha Williams, and I just recently graduated from Sacred Heart University. The 500 stars interns work in departments all over the Medical College of Wisconsin campus. So where did Adesha and Ayman spend their summer? I was over at the Eye Institute, and and I was under the direction of Dr. Carroll in ophthalmology. I spent my internship in the Dr. Chandran lab studying ovarian cancer cell proliferation. As part of the completion of their 500 Stars internship, the students present a poster explaining and highlighting the research work they experienced throughout the summer. Today I am demonstrating my research regarding a certain protein recently discovered in our lab and how it relates to how cancer tumors can spread through the body. My poster looked at squirrels' eyes. They're imaging squirrel eyes, and it's kind of cool to relate it back to humans. Squirrels are pretty heavily cone dominant and humans rely on that as well for their vision. So looking at some of the things that affect squirrels with their cones, we'll be able to make that bridge to see how important it would be to study human diseases in eyes. Both Iman and Adesha tell us they learned a ton this summer. Among the most significant things they learned. Definitely would say building the relationship with my preceptor. Ben really looked up to him, just all-around great guy. He focused me in on the right direction and let me go a little bit, which was cool because you're kind of still with your training wheels a little bit in college, but he trusted me enough to help him actually work on his manuscript in being able to go through some of this data. Also being able to take squirrel, something that humans kind of see every day, and being able to relate that to what we will need in the future in research and medicine. I'd say just the general feel of being in a research lab and access to all the facilities that we have in our lab. Just being familiar with that kind of stuff will be really valuable for me moving forward, especially that I do want to pursue research eventually in my career. So this early exposure is uh, very beneficial. So while many of their peers spent their summer taking time off, these students chose to spend their summer participating in the 500 Stars program. Why? Science has always been something of interest to me, especially research, and I saw this opportunity as a way to not only be able to continue my research that I already like to do, but to also open a few new doors. For example, I've never done anything with cancer before, and this new cancer research field to me is very interesting and thought that it'd be really great to get involved in it, especially at such a young age. I feel like the preparation is invaluable. And did this summer's program do anything to influence the future path of their education? Originally, I wanted to be a medical doctor, but after spending my summer researching, I really did didn't have this much in-depth research before in my undergrad, so kind of changing the MD to a PhD now. I really want to focus on research and get more information out there. Then what do they see themselves doing long-term big picture? And how does participating in the 500 Stars program benefit them toward that outcome. I hopefully will pursue an MD-PhD, and I feel that this program has not only helped me with my research skills, but also just given me exposure to connections that I can establish upon moving forward. I met a lot of great people in the lab I work in and in MCW in general, and so that exposure to this environment is really valuable, I'd say, moving forward. It definitely is going to give me something that PhD programs are going to look at, seeing that I was participating in a pretty rigorous research thing. Definitely gave me that opportunity in being able to network with some of the doctors here at the medical college. 
building me as a person. Coming out of undergrad, I was a little undecisive, so being able to set my eye on what I want to do in the future, which is get my PhD. By joining the 500 Stars Initiative, students agree to make a 10-year commitment of being tracked in their educational pursuit and progress. Both Iman and Adesha see great value in that 10-year commitment between the program and themselves. Very much so. Obviously, the MD-PhD program is a long and tedious journey. It, it kind of can feel really tedious as you get to your later years of university, but to have this kind of support to fall back on and people that have gone through it before and know how to do it and to give you tips and tricks along the way, I think that's very valuable. One of the best things I say of the program. I think it really is important because the networking and everything, I know I can talk to them and if I do have struggles with finding research, I know I can contact them and they'll set me up. And then also so they can just be proud of their 500 stars and see where we go in our futures. And both say if you're thinking you'd like to get involved with the 500 stars program. 100% do it. If you're at all interested in science, not even in research specifically, I'd never done an in-lab research before and this just opened the door to me for that. It's really great. You don't have to really know anything, honestly. You can come in and they will teach everything. The stuff that I covered in my lab is far more rigorous than anything covered in the curriculum at my school. I felt way more involved in this. So it's a really great way to spend your summer and I'd say that it's definitely worth it. I would say do not hesitate if you have any type of indecision or anything. Go for it. It's an awesome program. Test it out. Congratulations to all of our 500 Stars interns on a successful and rewarding summer of learning and fun. For more information about the 500 Stars program, contact the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin at ctsi.mcw.edu. And as summer draws near an end, so does this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Once again, our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Zeno Franco, Assistant Professor, Family and Community Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and Adesha Williams and Ayman Isahaku from the CTSI 500 Star Summer Internship Opportunity Program. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happy, healthy days ahead. For more information about research, events like our monthly science cafes, or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. While you're there, sign up as a community member. We need your help to advance clinical and translational team science and improve the health of our community and people worldwide. And remember, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.